John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 1100.jg0512, certificate number 37232. Deborah Sampson. So it's, uh, it's 4th of July season here in the United States in 2020. Um, futurelings may well remember that the 4th of July is the anniversary of our nation's liberation from the tyranny of British rule. Kind of. Sort of. The original vote on the Declaration of Independence passed on July 2nd. Many people didn't sign it until later in the summer. Why did we pick the 4th? Was it the day we had a quorum? Enough people had signed it that it that it became effective. On the fourth, the the Declaration of Independence, the wording was approved, but Continental Congress had already voted on the resolution for independence on July second, unanimously. And John Adams wrote home to his wife, "The second day of July, seventeen seventy six, will be the most memorable epica in the history of America." Oh, how wrong he was! Two, two days later, two days off, two days later. It's not so bad. No, well, especially given uh, given how slow information moved, how slowly information moved in in seventeen seventy six. It's just a made up holiday to sell fireworks and uh, corn. Not true. It's a holiday to celebrate our uh, our liberty and our freedoms. But also, you know, you're you're an but American also watermelon, patriot, right? Well, yeah, and fireworks. Let's be honest. Not any of the cool ones anymore. I think it's it's quite possible that future listeners have no idea why you would celebrate, set aside a day for your nation state. But it's yeah, pretty al- common. Although it is common, right? Yeah. Independence Day for nations that are independent, uh, it really stands um, that, I mean, Canada has an Independence Day. Mexico celebrates a different Independence Day than Cinco de Mayo. Yeah, that's not. The Mexican version. No. They celebrate what? The, it is independence related. The Grito de Dolores, the priest who rings the bell. The priest who rings the bell. That was That's that's a, pretty good. A, that's one of the great Emmanuel films, too. We, <laughs> we just have a bunch of guys in, uh, in, in stockings and wigs. Right. And they don't, they don't do anything active. Did you ever 
consider joining the military. It would seem, given your uh, your upbringing, that that potentially would have been an option, given that you were uh, a loyal and dutiful American, corn-fed. No, I was never really tempted. I mean, growing up on or near army bases when we lived in South Korea, um, nothing about that lifestyle really seemed like it was for me. I mean, somebody, I mean, just, just at the bare lifestyle minimum of somebody telling you what you have to do every minute of the day. I mean, that's a great, that's a kind of structure that helps a lot of people that wind up in the military. Right. Like they thrive there. That is, uh, I think I would chafe there. Did you, when you were young, chafe against authority? Oh, absolutely. I'm uh, like, I have to work against my own tendency toward contrarianism like i have to be a contrarian on contrarianism you know mm. like when part of my brain is like shut up you can't tell me what to do i have to be like shut up shut up you know i have to i have to double contrarian it and you, how, how were you successful in school uh were you already controlling your contrarianism then well in school uh you know you think of it as temporary right um, you think if I excel here, they'll let me out of here. It's not true of the military. So you had a strategy. I mean, it's not true of the military, although if you excel there, you get more authority. You get more, yeah. It takes a long time. Do you before, get more autonomy? No, right? No, but, you, but you're, it takes a really long time for that authority to become real, right? And for a lot of the time, you're kind of an intermediary. I mean, as, as you go up in rank and experience, I think people turn to you more. Is my idea of the military right? That that people sometimes less competent than you are constantly are, are giving you structure and orders that are. I mean, I mean, depending on how competent you feel you are, I think that's probably how different is it than any kind of corporate. I guess I've just described corporate life, also. Yeah, although it, I think the military is is um, one of the premises is that parts are interchangeable. So, so just like corporate life, <laughs> but, but even more so like yeah. the, the idea being that you should be able to take any Lieutenant and put them in any job and the duties would be understandable to them. They would be able to conduct the, their duties and then move on to another job. It's a wartime model where you need that. You need it. If, if, if somebody blows up on a gun, somebody else has to immediately fill in. Yeah. It's, 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 um, it's completely opposed to the idea that any one person is unique, has unique skills, and we need this one person. They're the only one that can do it. It's it's based around the idea that these this set of jobs can be done by anyone of this rank. So it was just a re, it was a recognition of my own extraordinary nature, I yes. guess, that, caused, that u- caused me to rule out the military. Unique flower, like all Doctor Spock raised babies. I was sure that I was. <laughs> An irreplaceable ray of sunshine. Right. Can you imagine being in a situation where you were doing a great job somewhere and there was a knock on the door and there was somebody standing in the doorway that was wearing the same rank as you and they were like, I'm here to take over and you're gone now. And you were like, but here, let me tell you what. Here's how the spreadsheet works. And they're like, no, I got it. Thanks. You know, like. You you have you have two hours to explain it to me and then you're gone. I'm envisioning even even worse scenario where like you actually figure out ways to improve 
the efficiency and performance of your duty, whatever it is, and are told, oh, yeah. no. No, 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 no. Have no, you not Have you not looked at the manual? No, this is a standardized procedure and your innovations are... The problem with your innovations is that they're good. Right. Well, and they're going to, but they're going to create problems because now we're going to have to change it all across the board and we don't, we don't have the resources or time to do that. Exactly. And I feel like of all the problems with capitalism, that is off, you know, innovation and efficiency are not often chafed at in that way. Even, even bottom up innovation and efficiency are often embraced. Well, in American, the, the American um, fantasy of meritocracy suggests that you, that unique people, people with unique talents are worth a lot more are prized and in their innovative natures and their 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 rascally uh, self determination like those are uh, that's the cream that rises to the top that we're also fond of. It might depend on what the skill is. If you're a really good NFL place kicker, that's probably true. Well, and I think it's the difference between being talented and being a good manager, right? Because if you're the best machinist in a shop. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be the best manager. And it might go the other way. You might be impossible, an impossible cog in the machine if you if you're aware of your talent. Right. And so that that becomes then a question of what 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 is the opportunity for advancement in a situation where you're the best at something but but that job has a has a pay ceiling or a authority ceiling, right? You don't um, in a shop they don't have maybe always the opportunity to make someone a master smith. And even off hours, the military regiments you in a way that no other job really does. Well, what the military has also is, you know, you get promoted. One of the components of, of promotion is just time served. Like if you've been in the military and doing a competent job for X number of years, you should be at X rank. So it isn't, there absolutely is a component where you can get promoted early if you're great and you can not get promoted if you're really failing. But just the idea kind of like school that pretty much everyone graduates. Yeah, well, or, or that everybody that's 10 years old is in fifth grade, right? So everybody that's been in the army X number of years is, is at that rank. And that is, again, it works against uh, the idea that your, your, uh, that that you could excel and be and just totally outpace everybody, right? Zuckerberg is a billionaire in his twenties. That's not going to happen in the U.S. Army. I also have to admit, I I imbibed the kind of I don't even know where this would have come from. Not my parents, who both had military, who both came from military families, but uh, just this idea that America now has a class based military, right? And unless something has gone wrong in your life, you don't enlist. I mean, that's it's a career of last resort now. It's not something to be aspired to anymore, which has well, not been true for anything, any other part of human history, really. I mean, but the military has always been, in almost every nation and time in the world, almost 100% class-based. And that's that's been a huge problem for armies throughout the centuries because the officer, the officers are often not very good strategists or military thinkers, but they come from aristocratic classes and, you know, you're poor and enlist at a low grade. And, um, you know, the, the military is already very stratified, but if you add in a, 
a class and wealth element to that stratification, it's not always the best way to fight a war. But we've also, in this country, we've kind of lost the idea that uh, the military is a sparkling career for a promising young uh, person of means. Yeah. Uh, well, and I think we lost that somewhere along the line, and it was and it was great that we had lost it. I mean, even in the like the American experience was from the Revolutionary War on one where it, you could break that aristocratic um, class ceiling. I mean, General Grant, right, made a made a great career for himself and was and on the strength of his military victories, gift, yeah. right, um, and that was true. That worked against the the um, the kind of global tendency to have the scions of wealthy families be the officer corps. Uh, the American military was uh, was a place you, uh, that the potential for meritocracy was there. Um, now, what's gone is that the the callow sons and daughters of the uh, mid-century capitalist class no longer think it's a glamorous enough job because they're all artists. There's no prestige to it. Right. No prestige. And I mean, we live in a world... No matter how many army commercials you see during football games, <laughs> they're not going to convince you that... And partly it is that the that we don't grant the military that much social power. Um, and I'm saying that as someone in Seattle. Now... If we were living sure. in uh, in Bluxy or um, or did, even Atlanta, did you say Bluxy like two syllables? Bluxy, Bluxy, Bluxy. Is that how they say it in Mississippi? Bluxy, Mississippi. Everything loses a syllable. It does. It's, it's Mississippi. Get there, Bluxy. <laughs> <laughs> what if there's a one syllable word? You just don't say it. Bluxy. <laughs> uh, I, and I think it is part of the cultural divide in this country that we see more and more is that there, uh, you know, if you're a graduate of the University of Alabama and come from a well-to-do family down there, you may consider a career as a military officer to be more of a social, uh, even necessity, than somebody would. In it, cer it certainly wouldn't be Northwest. unaccountable. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't because up, up here you would really think, boy, what what happened. What kind of breakdown <laughs> happened in this young person's life where, after college, they became a military officer? People, people still fill those graduating classes at the Naval Academy and at West Point. So they're there, and and you know, Virginia Military Academy, right? There's still a a, a culture of military um, that that yeah is now more and more geographical, and one could argue that there's a class element to it um, that is regional. Right, the difference yeah. between what's considered upper class in Virginia and what's considered upper class in and, and it's a split between red and blue America that we don't often think about. We don't think about it from here because the because the we're the liberal elite that makes the media. Well, and plus on paper we would be like, no, no, we uh, respect the military as much as anyone. But no, it, it impacts our culture in a very different way, super different way, and and weirdly considering how much military there is in the Northwest, how much. You know how many bases there are yeah. here. How many people enlisted people? The, the insularity of the culture probably contributes to I that. It, it doesn't does. matter how many military people there are in Bremerton. You're not hanging out with them. Uh, well, no, we don't go to Bremerton unless we're forced. <laughs> we, some of this must be a post-Vietnam phenomenon, right? Is that what compromised the uh, 
Is that what compromised America's default cultural respect for military culture? That, and I think uh, I think Vietnam set it in motion, but it was the re. It was the period in the eighties, I think, the Reagan administration, the Pride is Back era, where there was an attempt to, um, to bring that kind of uh, post World War II collective feeling of patriotism and connect it to the military. Uh, and that attempt, the the side effect was it was that it politicized yeah. the idea that if you if you believed in the red, white, and blue, and you believed in Chevy trucks, then you joined the military, and if you if you were if you didn't, then you were a communist. And that I mean that dynamic's always been in the in the United States, but it was never directly connected to. I forgot to mention the other reason service. why I didn't consider the military is because I'm a communist. Right. I mean, that's one of the. I, sure, I assume that's one of the first questions they ask. Yeah, futurelings all know that. I mean, futurelings who are living in a in a, a Marxist utopia. I'm sorry, a Trotskyist utopia. <laughs> Trotskyist utopia. <laughs> uh, but the uh, joining the army has always been a way for people to. Th- I mean, um, uh, throughout history, a way for people to leave their small town to to go out into the world to have economic opportunity. A, it's a, a place where people that had nowhere else to go went at the French Foreign Legion, for example. Um, but but people would join the join the army and see the world, but also join the army and potentially survive the famine. Join the army and uh, and put your uh, put your dark past behind you. And prior to very recently. Um, when records were not kept very efficiently and information didn't travel as fast as it does, you really could escape into the military, often join a, a roving band of mercenaries and never return to your small town. You know, uh, it was um, the military provided an opportunity in a way that it still does now, but, but a, an additional opportunity to really escape into a fog and um the fog of war uh, the fog of war as it were but really truly remake yourself in uh uh, like like leaving setting out for the frontier but it was and it still has that function today among the kind of people who were you know a lot of people join the military because it's a way out of whatever their community is right it's a fresh start of whatever kind of dead end they feel like they're in um Still true today. It is, yeah. The only the only downside is that the military keeps scrupulous records now. Yes. So there's certain kinds of trouble you cannot get out of. Right. They don't want you if you're a, if you're. I mean that that the it's a tension I think within the military because they want warm bodies, but they don't want. Sure, those recruiting targets are getting harder and harder to hit. Right, but they don't want problems either, and so. I think in the old days, there was a sense that you could, uh, if you were a juvenile delinquent, you'd join the military and straighten yourself out, or they'd straighten you out. I think the army now doesn't want to be tasked with straightening out juvenile delinquents, so they they make it a little harder. You need to join a roving band of mercenaries for that. You can become a white hat hacker, or that's uh, what happened to me. I mean, I, I. What was your roving band of mercenaries? I should have a rock uh, band. Yeah, I should have joined the military and gotten straightened out. But in fact, I or instead, I joined a roving band of mercenaries that invented indie rock. 
Were your parents disappointed when you chose indie rock over the military? No. <laughs> I mean, they were disappointed that I chose indie rock, but not over not over the military. They would have been more disappointed. I mean, my dad wouldn't. He was a veteran, but um, but my mom was against against the idea. Well, it's hard for moms. I mean, you're imagining your little boy or girl. I mean, maybe you're not even imagining them in combat. But you're just imagining them in basic training, if nothing else. You're like, oh, no. No, that seems – I don't think that seems very respectful at all to treat my son that way. I'm going to write them a note. Yeah, please please treat my little boy a little bit better. Please excuse John from push-ups today. He's very delicate. But this um, this escape route, this opportunity, this um, – and this opportunity to express – Patriotism, but also the opportunity to conduct the business of being a soldier, which is its own kind of business that appeals to, uh, that that appeals broadly to people. And you suggested it earlier the the um, the order, but also the kind of hands on mechanical work of soldiering. It's very knowable. It isn't, uh, no one gets into soldiering because it's a place to dream. Right. Right. It's a, it's a, a very concrete and tactile experience that really does call to people. Um, and it's, um, most volunteer armies are able to populate themselves with um, with people who treat it as a or, or who who think of it as a uh, as having a real draw for themselves, an emotional draw. But that has not traditionally been available to a uh, a whole class of people that we've talked about here on the omnibus quite a bit. Futurelings may not um, know what we're talking about. But um, I, I still don't know what we're talking about. A whole class of people uh, that we call women, mm. or um, in in our increasingly non-binary world, non-male identifying humans. However, little our contemporary listeners understand about women, it's possible that in the distant future they will understand even less. Although it's I think more likely that in the in the not so distant future all futurelings will be women um having figured out the the very little bit more chemistry we need to figure out to just eliminate men from the equation. The the very small <laughs> biological component of men is is really I feel like we have a pretty tenuous grasp. Yeah, on, I mean it's so we're so easy to replace that the fact that we have not yet been replaced is clearly a sign of a top-down conspiracy. Yeah. To, yeah. to, to keep us working. In the sciences. But that's going by the wayside more than more and more every day. Yeah. I mean, you, you how are we 100 years into modern science? We still don't have Wonder Woman Paradise Island yet. I feel like I, most of the scientists I know are women now. So, so they're going to have a solution any day now. They definitely have some seroptimist organization where they're working on it. Are we going to get like a pink slip in the mail? No, they'll let us die out. It'll just be. Oh, we don't, we don't get told. I don't think Your so. Your services are no longer needed. I don't think so. I Please think it's do. pretty clear our services are no longer needed. <laughs> I haven't impregnated anybody in well over a decade. We're just sidelined. I'm already, uh, I'm not even out to stud. What's worse than that? But you can imagine, and we see um, 
in our lifetimes, the opening up of the American military to women serving in increasingly more active roles. Like there have been women in the, uh, in the U S military for many decades, but, um, the idea that they would enter combat was considered absolutely haram until very recently. Um, women's women were excluded from combat work and it was uh, for all the predictable reasons, right? But also for... When it was palatable to say they physically couldn't do it, right. that was very, you know, that was just well understood by everyone. And when that became, when the optics of that changed, the language turned into something about the camaraderie of the core. Actually, I think the camaraderie of the core argument predated the uh, that, the physical argument. Is that true? Because the suggestion that there... that they, that women wouldn't be physically capable in combat was just completely secondary to the idea of how disruptive they would be in the barracks. It's always been a question of where are we going to put the showers? It's like all of the bathroom problems that American culture has. How are we going to do the bathrooms? And they, that's how you can tell it's ginned up. Because, yeah. you know, if you've ever built, a, you know, or remodeled a house, you know there's nothing easier than to figure out we're, we're just remodeling put, a bathroom. Just put a bathroom or just put just change the sign on the door or whatever. You know, it's like the the showers in mash, right? Between the following hours, it's for it's for women, and then the men can. Come but you got to make it Hawkeye proof. Yeah, well, that's right. That's the, the shower can't be a tent, right? That's an argument against uh, uh, integrating the military. Hawkeye's always like peeking at the nurses. And it's and the and the physical argument, the question of whether or not women would be able to handle the rigors of contract uh, combat, but also the uh, just the just the strength of being able to pick up a fellow soldier, sling him over your back, and carry him back behind the front lines. Although, again, the the importance of that wanes as less and less of you know military operations rely on physical exertion of any kind. Right, right. I it, mean, how, what do you have to bench press to pilot a drone? Uh, and our drone pilot uh, listeners can can write Ken at yeah. Let me know what you guys can bench. Project at gmail dot com. Uh, but it's been part of the popular culture uh, in our lifetimes, um, so much so that it's you know it's the uh, the subject of Demi Moore movies <laughs> and. A novelty. Like in the 90s, it was a novelty. Can a you novelty. imagine what if there was a woman but doing army stuff? But what's happened is it's it's now just, uh, you know, gradually and increasingly women are are active in every role in the military. It turned out a lot of the fears were uh, unfounded. unfounded. Although they're still excluded, you know, from the, 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 uh, the, final, um, the final curtain of special forces and there are certain jobs that, that women still can't perform, but they're fighter pilots. And I mean, they've, they have been uh, almost completely integrated. Last time I, last time I read a thing on this, the special forces are also overwhelmingly white to a degree you don't find. So that makes me think there's something about the culture of special forces that is not, that has little to do with qualification. If you look at the culture of the U S military, there's a there are huge racial differences just between who is in uh, armor and who is in artillery. Hmm. Like uh, there are um, it's just weird historical legacies. Well, and just cultural. It's sort of like uh, I, it may be that there have been uh, sort of like immigration anchor 
families that come and and then you know you've got an established set of of uh people in that command and and uh and self perpetuates yeah new recruits are are drawn there um but you know talk about a uh uh plantation mentality the US army has a lot of a uh, lot of holdover traditions from long long ago that aren't per- potentially the most progressive it's a shame uh all, and especially given what a large i mean how diverse the armed forces are right how and they and they try to proportionally diverse and they try to portray themselves as you know very f- progressive in that respect right like right. we're a place where it's Colorblind opportunities for all, but the special forces are hicks. Yes, yeah, <laughs> that's who you want. Now, throughout history, so so we see now as the as the uh, the military has accepted women, and the American military was late to this game, right? The Israeli army was co-gender from the outset. You and I are old enough to remember the media panics about every single barrier that fell to women in the military. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of it, it does seem fairly normalized now, or at least I hear about it less. Well, just like everything. I mean, the, the media panic that we're undergoing right now about, about, uh, you know, non-gendered bathrooms. Sure. There, there are still, there's still half the population of the country that feels like it's the, it's a sign of the end times. The idea that women would be, that would they would share barracks or military facilities or rank even with men only 15 or 20 years ago was just as much a just as panicky and now it's like fait accompli nope do you have a sense of within military communities like is there still grumbling and service we don't know about oh there's a lot i i was um i was fortunate enough to be um let's say drinking, although I wasn't drinking, everyone else was at an NCO club at an overseas base. Uh, and I was standing in a group of master chiefs, uh, from the U S Navy from the video game, Halo from the video game, Halo. And there were a, a lot of the chiefs were kind of, um, my age or a little younger, but the master chief of the, of the base, the, the senior chief, was a guy that had been in the Navy. He joined the Navy in Vietnam and then left the Navy and came back. And so he was older. He was older than the other chiefs because his, you know, he decided to become a lifer, but he'd had this period in between. He took a gap year. And um, he was obviously very respected by all the other chiefs. He He was, I mean, I saw him interact with the officers on that base and they all were extremely respectful of him. He was a very, very high-ranking enlisted man. And, um, or I'm sorry, non-commissioned officer. And he was, he, in confidence, but in, you know, loud cigar chomp and confidence said, this, the Navy has been ruined by the presence of women. Like, I, the reason I'm retiring, even though the reason he was retiring is it was time for him to retire. He's a Vietnam era veteran. <laughs> but he said, you know, I'm retiring. I can't wait to get out because it's all been ruined. Women have just changed it all, and it's just not as good as it ever was. And the military can't do its job anymore. He had all these cliches, and he was he was saying it with the authority of someone that was used to being right. Mm-hmm. And all the other NCOs were all you know, ashing cigars on one another and nodding in agreement. So, and I was, I was really surprised by it. 
given that we were in, I mean, we were on a base, but we were in this protected space of the, the NCO club. And so it felt like a clubhouse, but it was as, uh, it was as, um, just profoundly unapologetically sexist as you, anachronistic. As you could not have, if you saw it on film, You'd be like, come on, it's not like that anymore. They're just making these guys out to be the bad guys. I've had that experience with firefighters where they, you know, they will very candidly tell you these politicians are trying to get women in the ranks and it's just ruins our effectiveness as a, and uh, I guess they're, maybe they think they're being outsiders and truth tellers. They don't seem to have any awareness of like how that kind of thing sounds today. I have a firefighter friend in Seattle and he reports that the culture of firefighters and the police is kind of what, uh, it, it, it actually is often what the liberal critique of it is. Um, they are firefighters and police officers tend to come into the city from the suburbs and they are politically more conservative and they are sort of tribal, and um, and that affects their policing. And we see it in the cities. It's why there's often a gulf, a cultural gulf between police and fire, and the citizens they serve in urban environments. But they um, do have their own stripe of the flag now, so you can't argue with them. They do. They've got that one blue stripe. There's a blue stripe on the flag. Have you not seen this police flag? Oh, I guess so. They're, oh, it's the thin blue line. Yes. The thin blue line literally now has to be part of, like, they think they're 113th of America. Well, I, I ran for city council, as you recall, and my and the period that I was really engaged in Seattle politics and the degree to which the relationships between local government, the constituency, and cops and fire, um, I got a super crash course in it. That's a real hotbed, I guess. And it was, you know, it's, it's really, it's really intense because the, because police and fire are a kind of military paramilitary side of a, of a culture that doesn't have that anymore. Right. Like, right. I mean, a city, there's gotta be a lot of conflict there when we don't think much of that culture and they don't think much of ours. Right. It's a, it's the army of the city. And so you have that, the civilian oversight and the lack of respect for the civilian government and the other way around the The civilians feeling like they outrank these peons who are, who are just grunts, right? The army of the city. That's, that should be the police's new tagline. Yeah. That'd be great. One of, one of the things that I suggested (laughs) in a couple of those city council meetings was that we make all the police uniforms pink because the color pink would be uh, restful and would make the police more approachable. And it would also, counteract um, some of the toxic masculinity in it because I felt like police uniforms were becoming more and more paramilitary all the time. And to have, to have just local cops out there in black combat outfits, you know, ninja outfits basically just communicated the wrong message, not just to people, but to the cops themselves yeah. about what their job I'm not, was. I'm not your friend on the beat. And I was like, put on some pink uniforms with some gold epaulets, like really just embrace because if you're looking for directions in the city, yeah, you're every third some... person's in black fatigues. Yeah, exactly. If, but if there was someone in pink with a, like a Liberace uh, military uniform. How'd that go over at the Union? I was not embraced by, not only by the, <laughs> by the cops that I suggested it to, you know, they gave me a sneer, but also the other, uh, the other, the civilian leadership was like, listen, take this seriously. And I was like, I'm hundred percent serious. And they were like, I don't think you understand. <laughs> You're not serious. But there is a long history 
of women wanting to serve in militaries and not just in the capacity of nurses or um, administrators. Why do they want this historically? What are the trends? Do, do they have a sense they're getting kept out of a space where there's power and prestige? Do they think they have talents that are going unappreciated? So because the because the historical historical record is often blind, um, and the further back you go, the blinder it is, but also because it's such a limited subset of people. Um, it's unclear how, what percentage of people joined the military out of desperation throughout history. You have to guess it's high. desperation was a motivator. You don't want to put that on the form. Uh, no, you don't want to, like, why am I joining? Uh, desperation. There, there typically wasn't much of a form. Check all boxes that apply. <laughs> but in in uh, in the examples in history uh, of women who ended up in combat in military in militaries, there's always a a, a thing that pushes in their in the, the the commonalities in their stories are surprisingly that their stories are all pretty individual. But they're always kind of pushed into it by circumstance. Um, in the case, you know, famously the case of Mulan, who's become a, <laughs> a you know a Disney treasure. We all know how Mulan joined the army. Mulan was a was you know is a is a historical figure that's become a myth. Yeah, the the Chinese folktale may or may not have much in common with what you remember from the movie. But. Right. But her, you know, every family had to give a son to the army and her brother had died and her father was sick. He's too old. Too old. That's right. Too old. So she disguised herself as a boy and and uh, went off and to save his life. She's afraid uh she's afraid he would it would be the last time she saw him if she went off to war at his advanced age. And this disguise yourself as a boy thing is also, uh, in some cases, part of the appeal, um, because there are, you know, there there was a lot of pent up desire to have more, uh, more options in in a sort of traditional culture, and. Um, and to be able to dress up like a man and become a, uh, you know, a, a full citizen, someone that could work any job, someone that could get an education, like history is rife with examples of women that decided that it was either easier or preferable or their inclination to just join the masculine world. And it required a subterfuge, right? It, you weren't able to do it and maintain or or invent a gender role that suited you you had to masquerade um but but there are you know there are innumerable examples throughout history of women that succeeded in pretending to be men in order to have options and in retrospect do we think of this as uh, a queer space is there any kind of lgbt empowerment do we do we tell the story that way now of these women who decided to to dress as men, you know that kind of revisionism is up to us, right? The historic, it's the the record um, does not include that whole aspect of the story, and so all we can do is speculate. And in a lot of cases, 
you have to think that someone that is prepared to live her life as a man, you know, um, often for the rest of her life, uh, is doing so because that is what suits her. There must have been trans and non-binary people then, although they're not in the record. Right. And, and, um, and I think in a lot of cultures, there's always been space for trans people and for um, queer people. It's just that that space is um, often doesn't make it into the, to the historical record because, because a lot of people are excluded from that, from the record, but also it was a, it was a, a space that was an exclusive space or a space that was a winked upon a winked yeah. at space or a, you know, if you think about the role of transgender people in Mexican culture, like it's a, it's a real and respected side culture. It's just not one that you're going to see it. It's not, um, and it's even mainstream. It's just not. It's accepted and not accepted. It's funny that in cultures where there is no semi-mainstream option like that, it often ends up taking the, the taking the spaces that seem the least likely, like the military, for example, or uh, or uh, you know naval life or something. You know these these spaces that you would not think of as um, as home to a lot of um, yeah gender related exploration and and the military because it's a hyper masculine space um is a place where uh where in a way women who have successfully masqueraded as men are in some ways more likely to get away with it for for a while at least because of uh, because of how unlikely it is like it's the last thing anyone expects and there's a great there's a great diversity in human beings so to look over at your trench mate and fi- and and they are small or or um in some high uh, pitched voice in some way seem um other that's true of the person on the other side too. I mean, every every soldier is kind of um, they. I mean, soldiers come from all over, and they're all so different from one another. It's a it, it's there is a presumption of maleness, I guess, going into a military context, and that actually works as a beard. It seems like in movies where this is a device, uh, it seems like the disguises are never particularly convincing on the audience. But the characters are always completely taken in. Yeah, well, but in movies, you know, a, a beautiful woman can put her hair up in a bun and put glasses on, and all of a sudden <laughs> she becomes homely, and uh, and everyone agrees, you know, not you, not a sexual. Are you creature. saying if they would cast the roles less conventionally, like it would the the masquerade would work? Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, gender is absolutely a continuum, and we all know it, and we see it all the time, right? I mean, it, from from people who are hyper-feminine to hyper-masculine, there is the great majority of people who are somewhere in between those two poles. And on now, we recognize, on another axis as well. It isn't just a XY bell curve. It's um, right. It's a There's your a internal Krakatoa. identity as well. It's a Krakatoa. <laughs> is that right? Uh, it's a mound. Let's uh, We'll call it the gender mound. It's a mound, yeah. But our story today 
revolves around a woman by the name of Deborah Sampson, and it's connected to our Revolutionary War uh, theme. Theme. Well, I forgot about that because we haven't mentioned it for like an hour and a half. <laughs> our Fourth our fourth of July theme, because Deborah Sampson was a uh, uh, a woman in the colonies, uh, pre-Revolutionary War in the in the American colonies. She was born in uh, oh in the mid 18th century in Massachusetts. So and the years leading up to the late late colonial period. Late colonial period, and she was you know she was one of several children born to not prosperous people. Um, and her father was reputed to have been lost at sea. Ooh. And in many it's histories, r- it's romantic. Yeah. Very romantic, except that, uh, that further investigation reveals that he was not lost at sea. And in a lot of Deborah Sampson's histories, even now, uh, her father is sort of glossed over as like, oh, and then he was lost at sea. And that, left the family destitute. What does that mean? He's actually with his second family, like two, two towns over? Yeah. Oh. The, the re- research suggests Come that on, he, Silas. Went, he went to, uh, he went to Maine and had a separate family. And, uh, and eventually someone with his name was charged with murder in Maine. But for Deborah Sampson's purposes, he was just gone, an absent father. He's not in the picture, we say. And his, Typically, when we say uh, somebody's spouse or partner is not in the picture, what we mean is he's in Maine murdering people. That's right. He, it's just uh, a euphemism we use. Like my own grandfather, he went to Maine to murder people. <laughs> uh, so Deborah Sampson's mother uh, did you know, what was commonplace at the time, which was send her kids to live with relatives and others. And Deborah Sampson bounced around as a young girl. And in a period where indentured servitude was often the solution, if you were poor and had kids you couldn't um, provide for, you would put your kid, you know, put your 10-year-old daughter with some helpful neighbors. Boy, those were the days. Uh, but those helpful neighbors would then put that child to work as a... as a. Uh, it's really frowned on today. Yeah, although it still happens, boy, it's one of the, it's one of the sad truths of foster care uh that some of those kids are not yeah and there are other parts of the world of course where it's right very it's still your common their ticket ticket out of poverty and in the case of deborah sampson it was in some ways a ticket she was lucky enough to although working as a as a domestic uh to have um to be in situations where Although she wasn't directly taught to read or encouraged to get an education, she was able to procure an education. Partly it's thought from the other kids in the household who kind of would bring them her or bring her them, their schoolwork and kind of tutor her. Uh, at some point she spent some time with an elderly spinster who it's thought taught her to read in order to uh, read the Bible to her. It would have been less... Less normal for a young girl to learn to read than even a boy of her station. Absolutely, or? the it, you know female education was the um, was the the scandal of that era, and the idea that you would teach a girl to read or send her to school was political, right? It was um, it was it was socio political. It, it it was if you were if you taught your daughter to read, you were some kind of progressive. Outlier. Well, at least we've advanced up to firefighting and and fighting fly yeah. fighter jets. Yeah, some some somewhere in there. You know, you have to limit women somehow. <laughs> I, you know, like pick your poison. I mean, really, once they learn to read, your uh, your patriarchy's done. 
Like then, whether or not you give him a firefighting axe or not is almost rounding error. In in this case, she, by all accounts, was an extremely capable young person. Like she learned um, not just to read and write, but also to uh, to do all kinds of mechanical work. She was a woodworker. She you know learned uh, not just the sort of domestic arts, but was hungry for uh, education and opportunity, and and so much so that when she left her indentured in <clears throat> when she left her indentured servitude she went to work as a teacher uh you know an, an uncredentialed one but at this time the one room schoolhouse era one of the few irrespectable careers right professions right. for a woman right and and um and one that probably you could perform ad hoc uh, if there were a bunch of kids and a and the town threw up a schoolhouse who are we going to put in here uh, well, this 20-year-old girl seems to know how to read. Yeah, not an age of credentials, right? You could just, Abraham Lincoln could hold out a shingle out ever going to law, put out a law shingle and never go to law school. Right. Uh, but this also was the, uh, this uh, this era coincided with the beginning of revolutionary fervor in the United States. And then the, and she was present then for the, for the, um, sparking of hostilities. And what did she think about that? Was well, she a patriot? Do we she, know? She she was a patriot and um and went and uh, and attempted to join the revolutionary army. Uh went and was accepted and given a given a bonus for enlistment, but was recognized by some other young Young soldier. Oh, she she's disguised. She she disguised herself as a man. Called herself Robert Shirtliff. Shirt, Robert Shirtliff. Robert Shirtliff, who, which was the which is name. ironic because a shirtlift is one of the things they can give you away if you're right. uh, if you you're masquerading shirt, as a man. You, you don't want a shirtlift. Stay away from the from the shirtlift. But she took the name of an uncle, which I think is it often happens in these circumstances. I, I don't know the. I guess I don't know any of the etiquette for pretending to be a man. I've never had to do it. Well, what you don't do is go join the army in the town square of your of a neighboring town because she was recognized and, and so had to, and then didn't show up and was sort of counted as a deserter. And it, because Robert Shirtlift had, had signed up. She's tainted his, her fake identity. Uh, but it was, it was quickly discovered that she had tried to enlist in the army as a, as a woman disguised as a man. And although she repaid most of the money, she was shunned. By her Baptist church, it was considered absolutely a uh, like an, an affront against uh, God. Absolutely an affront against the town and everything, and specifically the gender swap element of it. Yeah, uh, that's the, interesting. The it, deceit of it, but but I think the it's a Shakespearean plot device at this point. These people all have Shakespeare. Can't you just be like, I'm doing the the whole Twelfth Night thing? Well, but this is this is Puritan Massachusetts. Yeah, maybe you don't have Shakespeare. And she's Baptist, right? So Baptists have have a very different. Um, I mean, I read a thing on Instagram yesterday about a, a friend of mine posted uh, something that, like a, a a covenant that a husband and wife would sign together, uh, and each tenant of the covenant was a biblical reference to how a wife cannot deny. Her husband, sex. Oh yeah, Mindy and I do that. We sign that. You uh, sign that yearly? No, uh, we re up every night at dinner. <laughs> okay. Do you pass the thing around for everyone to sign? 
But but this you know this document is basically like this is the covenant of marriage and it means that there is no denying sex yeah. within marriage. The covenant weirdly is very different for men and women. <laughs> a lot of a lot of people don't know that. But uh, so so at this time whatever the whatever the social censure she experienced it was real but it didn't dissuade her. Mm. And so she she's, she's she's merely a soldier in petticoats. Yeah, she went and and was. Uh, successful in masquerading as Robert Shirtliff and was uh, and enlisted in the Revolutionary Army. She, she signed up again. She signed up again. And this time was not recognized. Was not recognized. And she joined the 4th Massachusetts Regiment and went to war. She spent 19 months in the Army, uh, was wounded multiple times, at one point wounded twice in the leg with muscle musket balls. I mean if you're cross if you're cross dressing and you're gonna get shot, the leg is definitely what you want. Although if you don't want to get found out. Depends on where on the leg. Mm. Um and in her case, uh the wound was in a place on her leg where she refused medical treatment. Because she was afraid. She got discovered. She had her her head was wounded and she got her head bandaged. And then went off on her own and removed one musket ball from her leg with a sewing needle and a pen knife. Wow. The other musket ball was so deeply embedded in her leg that she couldn't get to it, and she lived with it in her leg for the rest of her life. I mean, to be fair, with the state of medicine at the time, the surgeon probably would have just used a pen knife and a sewing needle as well. <laughs> but you still got to give it to her. But, you know, the surgeon would have taken off her pants, right? Yeah. Um she was, of course, in all accounts of her life, um, everyone who's describing her circumstances also wants to describe her as part of an explanation of how she could have gotten away with this. And this is... It does seem tricky. This is universally true, I think, of women that masquerade as men in combat, that they are able to portray themselves convincingly as men somehow. And it often requires that they, I mean, they, they have to bind their breasts, right? But they also have to adopt a masculine hairstyle and a masculine tenor. Bad opinions about things. That's right. Uh, there's a, a, a famous example of this is a, a woman by the name of Margaret Ann Bulkey, who joined the British Army. She was an Irish woman. She joined the British Army uh, because she had taken a real interest in medicine as at a, at a young age, mm. and her family all recognized that she was an extremely capable young woman, and they conspired. Oh, they all they knew there was no other way for her to practice, so they all they uh, they had a she had a, an uncle named James Barry who died, and her family sort of let her masquerade as him she put on an overcoat and some shoes with lifts in them so she's now really bulky and joined the joined the army in order to go to medical school and when she when she arrived at medical school she was already 20 years old but because of her size and her femininity no one for a moment thought she was a woman they thought she was too young <laughs> and she was, and they, and there was all this scuttlebutt, you know, a conspiracy that she was. I think her voice hasn't changed yeah, yet. Yeah, she or... had this high voice that she was only sixteen, and that this was an affront. And several times in her med school career, she um, 
you know, she was at risk of being uh, refused her degree because of her youth rather than her gender. But she went on to become an army surgeon who had a, an incredibly distinguished career in the British armed forces as a doctor, uh, so much so that by, um, by the mid-19th century, she became the inspector general of military hospitals for the, for the British Army, a, 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 a rank of general and the second, general. Yeah, and the second highest ranking British medical officer. It's, I mean, if she's wearing, doing this whole thing in platform shoes, this is literally a high heels and backwards scenario where she's excelling in her field and the enormous strain of keeping up this charade. And she, by all reports, was incredibly difficult to work with. <laughs> uh, in fact, no less a person than Florence Nightingale uh, said that she was uh, perhaps the worst and hardest doctor she'd ever encountered. So she's really a method actor as far as being a, 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 ma- a man in the military. <laughs> but she did, she did an incre- she was an incredibly gifted surgeon. She performed the first cesarean section in Africa where both the mother and child survived. <laughs> wow. Uh, Makes you wonder how many, uh, how many asterisks are above that on the list. And she had a patron. Uh, she lived for a long time with the, um, the governor of Cape Town, Lord Charles Somerset, who... Everyone speculates, and and they were rumored at the time, accused of being in a homosexual a relationship, couple. and uh, and the the relationship was investigated, and it turned out, you know, the investigators let it slide, or or, or said there was no truth to it, but so she had patrons who uh, the, the suggestion is that he knew that they must have known, um, but she uh, she was sort of revolutionary in introducing hygiene into the British military in a time when that was still, you know, somewhat, uh, somewhat novel concept. It's the same today. If you have an all male apartment and then you get one woman roommate, you're going to see the same, (laughs) you're going to see the same pattern even today. But in the case of, of Margaret Bulky slash Dr. Barry, she died still in the role of a man and her, um, her true gender was not discovered on, Till her autopsy, when she died, she, um, and I'm, you know, I'm using a female pronoun here and I don't know what she would have preferred. Right. Uh, but when the doctor, when the good doctor died, uh, they asked to be buried in their clothes and not, not even bathed, not have their body bathed. She, she didn't want to leave any paper trail. Wanted no, just wanted this to go, uh, go to the grave. And unfortunately it was not, um, her requests were not honored. And, uh, and so once the secret was discovered, there was some amount of hullabaloo until her doctor, uh, or, or, uh, the doctor's doctor, uh, a major McKinnon, when, when questioned, uh, about this said that it was none of his business. What, what gender, uh, the doctor He's was ahead of his time. What, what, uh, what gender the, the generals, the phrase that's not my business probably did not exist until, you know, the 1970s. No, so. and it was pretty spectacular. I think even in its, its time that was, uh, I mean, this was a lot of these stories were covered up and that story in particular, Dr. Barry's story was covered up because of the scandal for the, the military. Scandal. What a suggestion that, um, that this could have even happened, let alone that, that this extremely prominent and, 
important there's, person. There's the threat to the power structure, but also they would have been squeamish about the idea of a woman doing medicine on men and women. Like right. that's that. There's something untoward to them about that. Um, a, a, a woman in the same period in uh, the I'm sorry, in the same period as Deborah Sampson, um, uh, and this is before Dr. Barry, a woman by the name of Hannah Snell. Um, she joined the army because her husband, uh, a Dutchman um, by the name of James Sumas, uh, he had he left her pregnant and escaped and and escaped into the military and abandoned her, and so her daughter died in infancy, and she put on a uniform and joined the military in order to find him, track him down. Why is this not a movie? And she did track down. Uh, track him down and discovered that he had been executed. Oh, that's why it's not a movie. There's and no, there's no comeuppance. Well, no, there's a. It's great because she then remained in the in the uh, the British military and was also wounded uh, uh, wounded in battle, and then was discovered and made the rounds. Did the the talk circuit. Uh, she was a celebrity. Yeah, the... she she opened a bar called the the Widow in Masquerade. You know, she she made a living from it, and that is what happened for Deborah Sampson too. She Deborah Sampson was taller than uh, than a typical woman, and even sort of a tall man for the era. She was five foot nine. Oh, and so when she joined the this Fourth Massachusetts, she was actually in a light infantry unit which was a uh, kind of a commando squad like they were faster and stronger than your average soldier and because she was because she was uh solidly built and tall she was actually in this kind of this you know the light infantry would like run around a battle and try and get a flanking position on the the enemy that's how we won the revolution guerrilla tactics that's right they were just they were just lined up shooting at things in big red uniforms. It was the shot heard around the world. After the war, uh, her identity was discovered, and um, at at a certain point, she she'd done some time as the um, as a kind of a personal adjutant waiter character for for General John Patterson, and he became her patron when her when. The truth was outed, and um, and it was revealed she was a woman. General Patterson gave her an honorary discharge, and she left the service. You know, kind of uh, most of the time, when a, if a woman was discovered in this situation, she'd be she would it, she would suffer extreme penalties and mm-hmm. prejudice. But in this case, the general had recognized uh, her good service. And you know we cannot know to what degree these were not open secrets, but perhaps the general suspected, or who knows who who was taken into confidence in situations like this. It feels like for Doctor Barry to have pulled it off, not very many people could have known. But um, but Deborah Sampson's there's not a lot of privacy in the military. I mean, the thing about people pulling this off in the military. Is the lack of privacy? Yeah, you know? it's to imagine in movies, there's always a salacious, skinny dipping scene where the the masquerading person gets caught out or almost caught out, or has to sit there and not join, and that has to happen. I mean, you have to go to the bathroom every day. 
I, I do. I do. <laughs> and if, I don't know about the colonial times. If there are 10 soldiers that all pull over to take a pee and one of them runs off into the bushes, it, the, there's got to be an excuse for it. Irritable right? bowel syndrome has probably covered up so many of these cases. <laughs> but Deborah Sampson, unfortunately, after the war, again, was not um, not destitute, but, but, uh, but married poorly, I guess. She... She married a man, uh, like a, a, a local farmer. She had three kids with him, but they did not prosper. And so she appealed to the, the, um, the, the continental government, the, 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 new, you know, the new American government, for her pension as a, as a decorated and wounded veteran. Everybody else was getting a pension. She had not applied for one. There were a lot of pension rebellion i mean uh, uh, a lot of soldiers had to fight for their pensions um but when she was when she was given her discharge uh i think it might it might have been considered extra bold to also demand back pay or demand uh demand a pension but mm. she eventually did and was granted it and went back several times uh to the legislature hoping to uh, hoping to get an, uh, her back pay, um, not just not just for her pension, but for the years that she didn't get her pension, and no less a person than Paul Revere. Uh, Whoa! Intervened on her behalf. Did he ride up at the last minute into court like a Perry Mason thing he, on his horse? He rode up and he and he hit the hit the local magistrate with a candlestick. The sexual equality is coming. The sexual equality is coming. But he rode on her behalf several times, and uh, and they carried on a lively correspondence. Whoa! Uh, and she became a you know a figure of some renown. There, um, there is a statue uh, devoted to her. Some of this must be revisionist, right? Uh, you know, 20th century women looking for for uh, antecedents and heroes in the past. It's such a wonderful story that it had a history um, that it, that that it was known in its own time. That Deborah Sampson gave she was on the talk show circuit, basically, mm-hmm. and and this was true. This was true also of Hannah Snell. They would come out and give a speech, and then come out in their Army uniform, oh, right. and do army stuff. There's a costume, but there there needed to be a corresponding narrative with both uh, women that they were women first, right? That they were mm. good wives, that they were demure. If Deborah settled down and had three kids, that's yeah. a mark in her favor. And she could do, you know, she could show her needlepoint and demonstrate to people that she was not some crazy cross dressing. She didn't want to be a man. She just did this. For our country, um, and uh, but the but it isn't just a a, a um, you know a two thousands revisionism. There's actually a um, there's a U.S. Uh, during during World War II, there hmm. was a Liberty ship named after her, the SS Deborah Gannett. Um, so she's. Um, She's been a. She's, part big, of, she's been accepted as part of military history. Yeah, and part of American, part of the American story. Uh, her her service was, she was wounded in combat, and she uh, she retired with honors. It's interesting how you know you've mentioned three of these cases. These are the ones we found out about. Right. The ones who were really good at playing male soldier got away with it, presumably. Right. We don't know how many of these there were that uh, 
that we just don't know about. I mean, if you think about, we're uh, celebrating maybe the three that were worst at uh, cross dressing. <laughs> well, I think, I think that uh, that Dr. Barry probably did a it's true pretty good job. But she, she ran out the clock. You know, on reflection, uh, Dr. James Barry lived as a man for the rest of his life and died preferring to, uh, to died in his gender of choice. So I think it's pretty clear that, it, at least in that case, some of our other protagonists here, uh, after they left the service, they returned to uh, the, the traditional role of wife and mother and, and so forth. But in Dr. Barry's case, um, Dr. Barry lived as a man and so probably would prefer, uh, well, was known his entire life with male pronouns and it's safe to assume would prefer to be addressed that way. So you think you do know Dr. Barry's pronouns, even though he doesn't have them on a name tag or Twitter bio? This is the kind of thing that it's, you know, it is tempting to uh, to be revisionist about. But in the case of Dr. Barry, he lived his entire adult life addressed with male pronouns and and never sought to be known otherwise. But what if that's only because of the oppressive society in which Dr. Barry found Dr. Barry's self? You know, what if... What if it's a it's a maybe it's a greater act of rebellion to to say maybe although probably not up to us and also true. I think um, I think there are so many instances where a person who was who had a fluid or ambivalent identity would have found opportunities in different directions and this was very very. Clearly that Dr. Barry lived as a, not just as a man, but as an esteemed and, you know, like an esteemed personage in the British army. For decades. For decades. Even when he didn't have to. Yeah. So, so I think, I mean, knowing as we do that there have been transgender people throughout history and they're either living completely in secret or um, living completely in in uh, a state of like perpetual sort of gender agony. Uh, I think it's closetedness. Yeah. I think in this case, Dr. Barry probably uh, was pretty liberated, but a lot of people die in combat and are buried where they fell. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll never know the true story of, of um, it's possible that man- many millions. armies in the past were 51% female. They were all masquerading. And they had no idea. It's kind of kind of like the scene in the life of Brian. <laughs> That's right. Stone him! Stone him! Stone him! And that concludes Deborah Sampson, entry one one zero zero dot jg zero five one two, certificate number three seven two three two, in the omnibus. Futurelings, we don't know if you'll have social media. I mean, we don't even know if you'll have gender. It's increasingly unlikely you'll have social media, but let's say you do. Let's, let's argue that for whatever reason, you have access to these social media platforms. Uh, you should use your abundant free time and your post-scarcity utopian future to look up at Omnibus Project, to follow at John Roderick on Instagram and Twitter, and at Ken Jennings on Twitter. Uh, you could uh, email us, electronic communication in our time, at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You could send us physical items through the increasingly embattled U.S. Postal Service at P.O. Box. Stand up for your rights. 
are you singing to to mail carriers? I'm standing up. Uh, I'm I'm standing up on behalf of the postal service with a little bit of a reggae vibe. Yeah, that's the thing the postal service needs right now. Mm-hmm. Reggae, more reggae. That will save them on because things are not real iry right now for the postal service. Boy, I'll say. I'll say, I and I want to send a letter. <laughs> uh, you could send those uh, things using the Postal Service to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. We like getting mail. We're, we're, we're children, basically. Yeah. We're little children eagerly clapping by the mailbox every day, and we're sad when people don't bring us things. Look, 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 Ken, we got a letter. For example, today, uh, Genevieve from... Well, her postcard's from Melbourne, but this postmark is from Nebraska, so hmm. I think she's a little, maybe a little stolen Australian valor here. Yeah, what's going on? But she sent me a postcard saying that she went to my uh, high school in Seoul, Korea. And the story gets weirder and weirder. So she has childhood photos of me via the yearbook. She said she almost sent me the yearbook, but come on. I'm a yearbook editor. She thinks I don't have a full set of, <laughs> of the Soul Forward School Crusader from 1982 to 1992. So uh, do you have any of these pictures to share? Uh, yeah, I can put yearbook photos on the... I'll put them on the Patreon. This is high school yearbook. Well, elementary through high school. It was a, it was a K through 12 school, so... I see, I see, I see. And th- she sent you a copy of a apparently a book that you were... That she mentioned to you on Instagram. It looks like some kind of... Um, Book that dads read on airplanes. Oh, Tim Powers Declare. That's the kind of book my dad loved to read on airplanes. <laughs> yeah. It has a review on the back from the National Review. So you know it's a a good, sure. clean, <laughs> uh, male, sweaty spy thriller. Sure. Shoot em up. Of some kind. Thank you, Genevieve. Uh, you can... I mentioned the Patreon. One of the perks for contributing to Omnibus financially is uh, an image feed where you could see... Photos of our show notes, of weird things that listeners have sent us, odd ephemera like my yearbook photos, if I remember to post them. I'll just type a note to myself right now. Dear Ken. Dear future Ken. Because we're pretending it's the 4th of July, but we're just cosplaying. Mm. You and I are wearing our Continental Army uniforms, but it's actually uh, April. I wear my Continental Army uniform every Wednesday (laughs) because I'm trying to get you to call me General. And you're dressed as a woman in a Continental Army uniform, which well, is which is confusing today. Well, not not confusing today. It would have been confusing before. <laughs> right. Now, once I knew the topic <laughs> of the show, I was like, that's why John had me bind his breasts on the mm. way in. This is all coming together. We, uh, yeah, and uh, for, uh, at the lowest possible tier, John, yes. if you contribute on Patreon, you get a monthly bonus addendum Omnibus entry. Tell us more. A full additional uh, hour approximately of omnibus content. So if if this is not enough for you, we understand many of you are casual listeners and we appreciate your enthusiasm. But for a small devoted group, we appreciate your enthusiasm and your financial support because you are what guarantees the viability of this project. Uh, You can congregate with your fellow futurelings. Uh, on the names on the titular namesake Facebook page, there's also similar subreddits and discords and whatnot. Whatnot is a social media platform that I just invented. Whatnot, yeah. yeah subscribe to my whatnot. <laughs> Don't forget to like and share. <laughs> whatnot, and it's uh, it's spelled what W W U T K N O T. Yeah, it's got oh, a K. It's terrible. It's a looks like a, the logo's a pretzel. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past, 
uh, when gender was just barely clinging to uh, still being real. We're on the last few weeks of gender even yeah. existing, and I don't, I don't mind it. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll probably miss it when it goes because uh, I can't do my Mary Poppins sister suffragette impression anymore. Hmm. What uh, if you were going to live in a genderless world? What would you? How would you identify? Uh, well, if not having, uh, I mean, I don't fall back on gender too much anymore. When people say, Ken, what are you like? I don't say, well, I'm, I'm a man. Right. First of all, I've, I'm I, a I, man. I have a Y chromosome baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would probably identify as, uh, uh, I mean, you are a dad American, but anybody can be a that's dad. My, yeah. Well. I would identify as a reader. A reader. I'm a reader American. Aha. I have a books. Reader. Nothing's more depressing than um looking for a shopping for a house in America today and going to open houses and just seeing what percentage of America does not have a bookshop. Not have a single book. Yeah. yeah. I I don't know if I've ever told you the story, but when we were on tour, um, one point with the band Carissa's Weird. And this was at a time when... Um, uh, I like bands that are full sentences. Good job. Carissa's Weird. Weird. Although Weird is spelled incorrectly in the band Carissa's Weird. Intentionally. Yeah, I know. Uh, and their uh, their slide guitar player, Ben, went on to found the band Band of Horses. So this is pre-Band of Horses, Carissa's Weird. And they used to drive, you know, and, and um, their whole band culture was that they would drink uh, vodka out of a plastic bottle, uh, all seven of them smoking cigarettes, and then they would they would drive through the night and cry. Our culture was that we would get to the venue early, and then everybody would pull their book out, and um, we were sitting in front of a venue in New Mexico or something, waiting for them to arrive because the show had, the venue hadn't opened yet. We were just parked out front, and they pulled up you know, all drunk and smoke pouring out of their car and they looked at us and we had all the doors of the van open and we're kind of laying back. Everybody had their book and they looked at us and rolled the window down and somebody inside their van shouted, readers. <laughs> and it was the, it was the greatest insult, but also, I mean, we all looked at each other feeling a little humiliated, like, Oh, we are readers. But band of horses strikes me as a bookish, as a thinking person's band. Well, they were, you know, they're all... They grew up. They were all thinkers. But, yeah, Band of Horses is... Uh, ben was a reader. Also a drinker and a smoker and a crier. He was a stealth. <laughs> he was... I guess identifying as a reader makes me seem like some kind of snotty... Reader. Snob. It's a very effete. Well, no, it's other... It's the drinkers, smokers, and criers that, that put that on you, Ken. Being a reader is nothing to be ashamed of. <sighs> Maybe I identify as a Dr. Pepper drinking American. I'm sorry, diet Dr. Pepper drinkers. Dr. Yes. Those of us that I'm are... So, I'm so straight edge, I will not drink sugary Dr. Pepper. Those of us who are true peppers uh, look askance at you trying to steal our pepper values. You're like, I'm a pepper. Yeah. You're not a pepper. I'm a pepper. You're a wouldn't, diet pepper. Wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? <laughs> but you're not. Uh, anyway, futurelings, um, we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear uh, may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all the recordings, may have been our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.